Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Eruvin, daf Yudtet, page 19. Um, we are still in the Agadot that began on page Yudchet, on page 18. Um, and as Yerdena promised yesterday, or, uh, you know, tentatively assured us, we will also, you know, veer back into Eruvin topics before the daf is over. Um, it's a long daf, and... And there's plenty to read here and plenty to mull over. Uh, we're going to take, you know, some selection as usual. Okay, so somewhere towards the middle, towards the top, but really the middle of Amud Aleph, the Gemara says as follows. Mami's Be'ach Zahav. What's the golden altar, right? The golden altar means in the Beit HaMikdash. She'ein alav elek dinar zahav amad kamashanim v'lo shalta or. So what happens? You've got this altar in the Beit HaMikdash, which is covered by gold. And the amount of gold, the thickness of the gold there, is the amount of a golden dinar, meaning it's a coin. And however thick that coin is, right, the point is that all those years that it's being an altar, now what's an altar used for? An altar is used for karbanot. It's used for sacrifice. It's used for burning incense, meaning whatever the altar is used for, it involves fire. And so the impressive thing here is the fire did not burn it. It did not melt the gold. So so too, right? The implication is so too that the Jewish people who are filled with mitzvot, like um, filled with, you know, having done positive commandments, uh, like a pomegranate, right? Meaning the same way that uh, if you split open a pomegranate, you see, you know, myriad of seeds, so too, the Jewish people, even the sinners, Poshe Yisrael, even the sinners of the Jewish people are filled with having done mitzvot just like a Ramon. And there's a verse here from Shir Hashirim from the Song of Solomon that says as follows, right? The idea is that your temples are like the split pomegranate, right? Which mean, and the implication here is that it, it can't be hurt by the by fire it can't be hurt by the fire of even gehinom which will loosely translate as hell and we're going to talk about this a little bit further as the gemara gets into it because of course <clears throat> at least i certainly grew up thinking you know the jewish people don't have hell so what is this whole gehenna the fire of gehenna but we'll come to that in one moment because first um rish lakish i'm a rabbi shimon ben lakish what did he say i'll take rakatech from that verse in shirashirim don't read it as your temples, but rather reikatech, your empty ones. What are you, who are your empty ones? Even the people who are empty, meaning they're sinners, they, they didn't even do very well, but they are nonetheless still filled with mitzvot, um, like a pomegranate. So then how much more so? Somebody who, you know, somebody who did well, you know, the power of Gehenna would have no, the fire of Gehenna would have no power over them. So this is kind of like a, a beautiful testimony to, to who the Jewish people are and the idea that there is, you know, salvation over, you know, everlasting type of thing. Um, and it's, and it's kind of jumps from one stage to the next, right? Because we're talking about, we're talking about the Mizbeach, we're talking about the altar and the gold that did not burn. And we're going to then now jump to that to say the Jewish people who, even when they are sinners, are nonetheless 
you know, not really going to burn because they're so filled with mitzvot karimon. And like the Gemara's thought process here, so to speak, or the process of presenting this logic is fascinating. And and again, we've talked about this many times, not quite linear, um, but it certainly works in terms of the association between between each of these different factors. And I would say that in the month of Elul, which is exactly when we are, as, you know, Rosh Hashanah Lum, this idea of no matter how bad of a sinner you are, you're still going to be okay, is kind of reassuring. Um, yeah. Oh, God, I feel, you know, I, these are one of these interesting Gemaras that, again, they're so far off from anything about a Reuven at all. Um, and it's also interesting to see Chazal sort of work towards this thing that anybody who is part of B'nai Israel can't really be that bad of a sinner, right? That even if you're just by being born into B'nai Israel, there has to be something inherently good about you. Right, right. Okay, so now we're going to jump down just a very little bit on this, as I said, long daf, And we come to yet another statement of Revirmi ben Al-Azhar. We've been, the, the Gemara here has been citing quoting Revere Mir Ben-Alazar, and throughout this Agarita, he does seem to have quite a lot to say here. Um, we are not going to do a who's who on him today, perhaps a different day. Um, so, what does he say? There are three entrances to Gehinom. Right, to the... Well, Gehinom is not really translated as any particular word, right? Like, so you can see it translated often enough, you'll see it written out Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Um, sometimes you see it written Gehinom, meaning the valley of Hinom, the place that is called Hinom. Um, so I keep saying hell, but more specific, the Gemara is much more precise than that and is using the term Gehenna really very specifically. So here we have again, there are three, uh, three entrances to get to Gehinom, one is in the wilderness, and one is in the sea, and one is in Jerusalem. Bamidbar, the one that's in the wilderness, we have a verse from that, from Sefer Bamidbar. They they are closed into the earth, right? This is talking about Korach, right? And they they perish in the earth, Sha'ola, um, in the Sha'ol is translated very often as like the grave, but here again, or into the deep of the earth, um, the story of Korach being, right, that they are, they rebel against Moshe and they are punished for it in a very dramatic, you know, the earth swallowed them up kind of way. And then Bayam, where's the entrance to Gehinom in the Yam, in the sea? Dechtiv mi beten Sha'ol shiveti shamata koli. Right, and this is now Jonah, the book of Jonah, where Jonah is in the, it's a uh, Paragbet, the second chapter of the book of Jonah, where he famously is in the belly of the fish or the whale, depending on which version of the story you want to read. And he is very distraught and he's praying with all his might to get out, you know, and he says, like, I'm praying to you from Sheol, from, from the grave, in this case, you know, the grave that would be, the, his, his grave would be in the belly of the fish, deep in the water, if he were not saved, right? Hashem saves him in the end. And I should note, of course, that we read the book of Jonah in the afternoon as a Haftorah on Yom Kippur. So, so I do think that we're, you know, it, let's put it this way. In the whole Dafyomi cycle, the fact that this would come up in the Elul's season is not a given, but it certainly lines up very beautifully. And then lastly, 
In Jerusalem, there's an entrance to Gehenna. And what does that mean? As it is written, It's a verse from Yeshayahu, from the book of Isaiah, where it says, you know, God says, um, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem, is in Jerusalem, right? And when you're talking about fire like that, then clearly you must be talking about Gehinom, Vitara de Be'er Bishmal, Asher Ur Lo Bitzion, or here it means light, but it also means fire. Zo Gehinom, this is Gehenim, Vitanor Lo Bishalayim, Zo Ptichasho Gehinom. So the idea is, excuse me, that this verse from Yishayahu, which really kind of repeats on itself. Like if you're talking about biblical poetry, then it works beautifully that it just lines up to repeat synonyms, right? But so that's one way of reading biblical poetry. The other way is to say, no, each each phrase means something new. And that's what the Gemara does here. It reads it to mean each phrase means something new. The first phrase refers to Ganem itself. And the second phrase ref- refers to the entrance to Ganem, which is in Yerushalayim, because it says explicitly Yerushalayim. And then, of course, the Gemara, and this I think is fascinating. The Gemara wants to know, to Vituleka, there's no other entrance to Gehinom. There's no other way to get to hell. And so what I think we should note, each one of these examples is, you know, on the one hand, physical, and on the other hand, figurative. Um, and I think that's, you know, an important comment on when they're talking about, are you in the depths, right? You're in the depths of despair, you're in the depths of punishment, you're in the depths very close to death. Any one of these kinds of things is, again, on the one hand, physical. I mean, Jonah in the and, and the story of Korach, they are very much in wrapped up in the in the either in the water or in the earth um and at the other hand it's like you know if you how do you end up there you end up there by doing the wrong thing right in each one of those cases <clears throat> so now the gemara of course has to answer this question are there any more entrances to get to gain Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So we have all these, you know, this tradition that goes back to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. There are two tamarim. There are two, well, it says tomorrow, but nowadays we'd say tamarim. There are two date trees that are at the entrance, that are in the valley of Ben, which is again gay, that's the valley of Ben Hinom. And there's smoke rising from between them. You want to talk about hellfire. So it says, that's where it is. You've got the smoke rising from them. And the, those are the palm trees of Har HaBarzel, right? And that you can actually use them, those the branches, as a lulav. And it says, this is the entrance to Gehenna. And then the guy says, well, that's not so, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a whole new entrance. Maybe that same description is the Jerusalem entrance, and it just has a more specific description or a more specific locale. Um, okay, so that's that's that section of the three entrances to Gehinom. But then the Gemara says, we have a whole bunch of names here. I'm Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, right? What, what are the different ways that we refer to this place? There's seven names for Gehinom. The Elohim, Shaol, the grave, Shaol, Avadon, 
loss or despair, I guess. You know, each one can be, they're, they're used as proper names, but they can also be translated to mean, you know, the depth of, of, of trauma, dejection, everything that you might think would go along with this. Ober Shachat, Uvor Sha'on, Vetit Hayavan, Vetzalmavet, Veeretzatachtit. And some of these terms you've heard surely in the liturgy, because that's, you know, we hear that it's in the book of Psalms, you know, I go begate Salmavet, right? That's the most fam- famous psalm of Tilim in the world. Um, okay. And then, so, and then we've got just analysis of each one of these terms. They come from Sukim, they come from different verses, and that's how we get these various different names. And then the Gabriel says, well, one second, Vituleka, are you really going to tell me that's the only names? Those seven names are it? That's it for calling Gehinom? Vaika Gehinom, what about Gehinom itself? And the Gemara says, no, that's not a name. Right? Meaning it's just a description that it's a valley that's such a deep valley as the valley of Ben Hinom, right? Or, or alternatively, it says everything that goes in there, Hinam. Hinam meaning, um, well, literally for free, but meaning like for, for no good purpose. Right for in vain, wasteful, waste, wasteful activity. Um, okay, and then just one last thing, Vaika Tifta. The Gemara says, isn't there also a name? Wasn't it called Tifta? I think that's how it's pronounced. Or Tefta, Tafta, Tafta. Dechtiv ki aruch met mol Tafta, v'hu shekol metafta bitzro yiposham. The Gemara says, so again, this is from another verse in the Ishayo in Isaiah. And the Gemara says, that's also a description. It's not really a formal name. And what's the implication? It was called Tafteh because anybody who's, who's inclination, right, who allowed themselves to give in to temptation, they would fall there, right, in this place that was known as Tafteh, Mitpateh, that they would be seduced into it. So we have this mix of like, again, this idea that there's actually a physical place that is in the depths somehow. And then we have this more figurative sense of how do you get there? You get there by, you know, by being seduced into doing the wrong thing. You get there by, you know, through your despair, you end up doing the wrong thing. Any which one of these ways, you know, puts the the person who ends up there, right, in, in Gehinom, in the depths. And whether we really truly describe this as hell, I think is kind of a bit difficult because we're not talking here about, you know, the Christian ideals of hellfire in terms of punishment, right? We're talking about that when you end up in the, in your own depths, right? That's a really hard place to be. And that's true for Yonah. And that's true for Bnei Korach who end up, you know, truly buried in the ground. Yonah is saved, right? And for anybody who ends up, you know, by virtue of their own activity or giving into their own seduction, temptation, whatever it might be, where they're going to end up, you know, brought to the deep valley here. And then what? Right. As far as I can tell, this Gemara leaves it there, meaning you're there and that's enough. Like you are you are now in your depths of your sin and. We're going to come back to this idea that, well, you know, but every Jew has enough mitzvot, like the pomegranate, that you're going to be okay. We're not talking here. Maybe elsewhere we'll talk about punishment. But in this place, we're not talking about any more punishment than your presence in the depths, right? Like it's hard enough to be there. And then, of course, the Gemara goes on to talk about 
Ganeiden as kind of the antithesis, right, of, of Gehinom. Right. But what's interesting here is they think exactly what you are describing, which is, you know, is Gehinom a place or is it a state? Um, and I think here there's a real tension as opposed to the Ganeiden, which I'm going to read quickly. It's clearly a place. And that sort of makes sense because we refer to Ganeiden as the place where, you know, the first man and woman had to be. So it physically does have to be a place. And even though we, you know, sort of always say, you know, paradise is sort of a place that we strive for in a much more theoretical, I think Ganeiden, you know, it really does have to be a physical place. Like Adam and Chava had to have started somewhere. And that has to be a physical place that was actually on Earth. So the Gemara here reads as follows, Gan Eden, right? Now that we talked about Gehinom, mm-hmm. so now we should do the inverse. Amarish Lakish, Im Be'eretz Yisrael, Hu Beit Shan Pitcho. So it's also interesting to see that it's clear they're not really sure where it is. And what most of the commentaries explain is they're picking places where sort of the foliage and the land itself is so beautiful. This must be where Gan Eden was. So the first place that Rish Lakish offers is, he says, if it was in Eretz Yisrael, then it should be in Beit Shan. That's where the entrance would be. Being the Arabia, right? If it's in Arabia, Beit Gerem Piticho. It's this area of Beit Gerem. Being Bain Haneharotu, right? And if it's between the rivers, and this would be the rivers of the uh, of Bavel, right? I uh, so Dumaskinan uh, Piticho, this place of Dumaskinin. Uh, that's where it would be. The b- b- Babel, okay, and if it's, uh, you know, if it's uh, specifically with Babel, Abai Mishtabech Bepare de Mavar Yamina, Rava Mishtabech Bepare de Harpania, right? So they, Abai would praise the fruits that were on the right bank of the Euphrates, and Rava would praise the fruits of Harpania. So, first of all, I love the idea that it's sort of like Abai and Rava even have a machlokas over this, like where <laughs> Gan Eden could be. Um, but I think it also tells us something like we're very open to, because I think, again, mankind starts in Gan Eden. It does not have to be in Eretz Yisrael. It could have been somewhere else in the world, right? The relationship of what makes Eretz Yisrael special really is through Avraham. But, you know, mankind could have been placed anywhere actually on earth. So, and it's also interesting how, Within this discussion, the discussion around Gehinom is much, much longer uh, than it is for Ganeiden. You know, Ganeiden is just, it's really, it's just a couple of lines. So that was also of interest to me. Yes, I agree. It's kind of like, you know, uh, how much worrying people might have about Gehinom and Ganeiden is, on the one hand, a known commodity from the Torah, right? And on the other hand, I feel like it feels much more elusive because how, how are we really getting back to Ganeiden? Whereas Gay, you know, like a little closer. Right, exactly. Um, so now, okay, we're going to leave that God a ton. I'm just going to jump down to Ahmed Bet. Uh, just to mention, you know, go back to a little bit of a Reuben. Um, so the Gemara starts with here in Ahmed Bet. Yoter Siman. So it gives us this mnemonic, which means extended, Yoter more, Betel in a mound, Chatser a barrier, sorry, Chitzat, a barrier of Chatzer, a courtyard, Sheyashva, is dried up. And it tells us this is Siman, this is a mnemonic. Now, we've seen mnemonics come up before. Um, and really what a mnemonic was, was remember, this was oral. This was not written down in the way that we have so much access to text the way that we do today. And these essentially were tricks that we see sort of place or mnemonics placed within the text 
so that people could remember either groups of agarita or groups of certain halacha placed together. So here they're going to give us a mnemonic for a series of sort of questions that Abaye asked uh, Rava. And I'm just going to read one of them. But I just wanted to talk a little bit, you know, just, I guess, like a little bit of a what's what of what the purpose of mnemonic is. And we see them, we've seen plenty of them already in our study of Dafyomi. So the first one reads as follows, right? Um, ba mine abaye me rabba. So Abai wanted to ask this question of Rabba. So the question is as follows, right? We The Mishnah that we'll go back to described sort of, you know, that you had these sort of double side posts and then you would put other upright posts in between. And so the question is, let's say you have two double posts and there's more than 10 amot between them, right? So according to Rabbi Meir, what do you need to do? You need to add something because you can't have a gap more than 10 amot. And so the question is, what if instead of adding pasim, instead of adding upright boards, you extend the double post, right? You you add another you add another aman each side of the double post. So therefore, you would get to um, you would get to a gap that would not be bigger than the ten amot, right? So the Rabbi Meir Mahu, would this be acceptable to Rabbi Meir? Is it that you have to add these upright posts, or could you just extend a double post? Amarle, Rabbi apply uh, replies to him. Tatuhe, right? We already learned this. Ubilvad right? What is the language of the Mishnah? As long as he increases the boards. My love to Bidimudin, right? Does this mean that he has to extend the double the double boards in width? So la de Pishutin. So Abai says no. Maybe it just means that he actually just keeps adding these upright boards. It's that you're not allowed to actually extend the double post. If this were so, Rabba replies, Hi, right? Look at the language of the Mishnah. It says, as long as he increases the board, right? So it's kind of imprecise. It doesn't explain what does that mean? Does it mean you're increasing the number? Does it mean you're increasing the width? If it was going to be that you had to increase the boards itself, the language of the Mishnah should have read as follows. Until he has increased the boards, meaning the number of the boards. That's what it should have read. That's how it should. So therefore, what? So you need to teach that what? That it's not that he has to, you know, then you would be able to teach that it means he would actually need to increase uh, the number of boards itself. And then the Eka de Amri, they go through a different version of this. So I think the idea that Rabbi gets to at the end is, is that the language is sufficiently vague in this Mishnah, that you really could solve it either way. You could either extend the width or you could add the boards, just as long as you make sure that the gap is not uh, is, is an acceptable um, gap. So again, I think this is just a lovely, you know, where you sort of see how Rabba plays to solve the problem, the, the good question that if I ask him, he solves it within the Mishnah itself, right? He doesn't need to bring a proof from anywhere else. It's really just from doing a close read of the language of the Mishnah. And I think this is always interesting because, again, this goes back even to our discussion about mnemonic. This was an oral tradition. And one could see how when something is oral, some of the subtleties or words could have maybe gotten swapped out. And we see that sometimes, right? Sometimes we see what they say, no, the Mishnah should actually read this way or you should add these words into the Mishnah. It's fascinating to me, and again, this is nothing that I've ac actually studied, and I don't know if this is something any of our co-learners has studied, but the idea that oral language is precise.
we're such live in such a culture where everything's written, you know, we could understand how written language is precise, right? This is exactly what we're doing with the Gemara itself, right? We're we're looking at each word and we're saying it's this or it's that. And we see that all the time with Psukim, right? It's written down, it's the Torah Shabbatah. But we see there's a precision with the oral language as well. Um, that's fascinating to me. And I'm not sure that that's inherent in oral, in something that's an oral tradition. I'm just thinking about this oh. out loud. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll comment on this just for a bit. There was a time where I was actually very interested in all of these questions of transmission and preservation and authenticity from one generation to the next and that kind of thing. And, and there, and there have been people like you're Dana, you're surmising correctly, you know, that people study this, right. They make it their life's work. I once had a professor who he wrote a book called beyond the written word. And it was, it's really about the oral tradition in Islam. He's not a professor of Jewish studies. Um, and, but it was very much exactly this question to what extent was their preservation of the text of like a fixed text that had not been written down to become a text, you know, what we today would call a text. And so that's one thing, meaning like it's definitely there in the number of like folklore cultures and, and like I said, you know, Islam and, and other religions throughout the world who have oral traditions where it becomes very much relevant. And I can't, I can't not mention um, Professor Rabbi Professor Yaakov Elman Zatzal from late of YU, Yeshiva University, who was very interested in this question. His, his book is something like Authenticity and the Oral Tradition, or Oral. I will look this up because it, it you know, deserves our full, full attention. It's a difficult book to get through if you aren't already steeped in exactly his questions. But he's the one, I think, who first exposed me to the idea that the Gemara was written down before the Mishnah. Which is like, what? Right? Like, that's like, to me, it was mind blowing because, you know, the Gemara is like commentary on the Mishnah, right? Except for that, it may well have been that as a matter of history, the Gemara was written down first because it was still, you know, much more like scratch notes and it was less of a taboo to write it down. Whereas that orality of the Mishnah was preserved. Um, so I think, Yordana, without having looked into it, you hit it all exactly right. Uh, no, and I and I actually also had the privilege to study with him as well. Um, and yes, that is something that he's very, very interested in. So I guess we're going to end with that question. Um, kind of actually surprised we haven't discussed that question before. I think it's really the first time it came up. And I'm sure we'll explore... have the title, Authority and Tradition. Yes, that's, that's the book. Um, and I'm sure we will explore it more as we continue our study of the DAP. So that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink is for us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Neat Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of the questions it raises about hell, Gan Eden, uh, issues of oral tradition on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.